0: My oldest son is reading a book that I earlier thought was called Mind Games, but that's not what it's called. That's a marriage book that's going to be written by a man about his wife. It's called Mind Gems, or Mind Gem. And this book begins, see, this is a book that I, should, I would have just told my son all the contents of. It's about the mental strength required to be a physical specimen to be a magnificent athlete, and I could have told him all these things, but I want him to read them for himself, from another master, not only from me. At the beginning of this book though, there is the following quotation, see if you can identify its author. 90% of the game is half mental. Yogi Berra, thank you, very good. 90% of the game, he said, is half mental. This is supposed to be confuzzling. What does he mean, 90%? You know what he means, but he doesn't know how to say what he means. But 90% of the game is half mental, he says. This is the same man who who once said, no one goes there anymore. It's too crowded. Okay, it's about three-second delay. If we were on radio, we'd cut that out. Or when he was hungry at a pizzeria once, apparently... The pizza lady said, would you like this pizza cut into four slices or eight? He said, I reckon you ought to just cut it into four. I don't think I could eat eight. <laughs> so you guys are getting quicker. If I keep doing it, I'm having a feeling you might start laughing before I even finish. The Yogi Bear is onto something. Ninety percent of it is half mental. There's a whole lot about this life that's been entrusted to us that we've been swept up in as belonging to Jesus that has to do with how we think about things, how we see things, how we imagine what's going on in our lives, how we frame our experience. Uh, Whatever you let in the frame of your experience helps you to understand what you're seeing. Whatever Whatever is outside the frame, you can't see. You don't think about. And so one of the things that we're going to talk about today as we... Look at the apostle Paul's words coupled with the psalmist who says every moment of every day and every feature of topography God is communicating in radiant and breathtaking ways. As we're going to look at this embedded concept that must be in our thoughts and in our actions that behind everything it is the Lord Christ we are serving. It is the Lord Christ we are serving. And run, rabbit, run. John Updike's story, a man has had an affair and he is introduced to the priest who is trying to have some influence in his life. And the priest says to him, rabbit, this is the man's name, if Christianity were what you think it's supposed to be, if you... If it's just chasing a rainbow, then we would pass out opium at the services. And the same thing C.S. Lewis said, I never came to Christianity merely to make me happy. I knew full well that a bottle of port could do that. You know, I could drink beers. There are many ways that you could feel momentarily happy that are better than Christianity. He says, but what we're trying to do is we're trying to serve God, not be God we're trying to serve God not be God and one of the things that we're going to be looking at is this idea that the Apostle Paul suggests that what has happened in this season of time where God has stepped into the world born in this life of humiliation in our skin mingled his tears with ours able to sympathize with our weaknesses, is that it helps us to begin to re-envision all the rest of our lives, all the ordinary parts. But this envisioning is an act of imagination. It's 90% half mental. And so that's what we're going to talk about. Because as you'll look at the end of this passage in Colossians, the apostle is saying, look, here's some relationships where the benevolent rule of Jesus, who's now the king. He stepped into the world. He lived in your place. He's died in your place. He's gotten up from the grave and transfigured it forever. He's now the king, even though you can't see all that. We've talked about that during Christmas. Here are some of the relationships, some of the mundane places that this works itself out. And what's a surprising feature always in the scriptures is is that the place where you're going to most likely and most fully serve Jesus is the same place that you receive your electric bill. Or, as people out here might say, your light bill. The same place upon which you, for which you pay property taxes. This address is where you're going to be following Jesus. It's not some other life. It's not some life that's not been given to you. It's not some life that will happen after what you're going through now is better or after this relationship you're in now is better or your job is better or you're better. It's this one right now. So he talks to husbands and wives and children and fathers, slaves and masters, all the kinds of relationships where there's subordinates and people above them. These are the addresses. These are the places where we have to reframe, and we have to learn to see in a new way that everything that we see is not all that there is, and behind it stands this Lord over all whom we are serving. So we're going to think a little bit about revisioning our moments, or as Charles Taylor said, the sanctification of ordinary life. First thing to consider is this. God doesn't hate Ordinary things. That might seem obvious to you. God doesn't hate ordinary things. At the beginning, right before what we read, the apostle says this. And whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of God the Father, giving thanks through his Son. Do you see what's happening here? The fact that he says, do everything in the name of Jesus. And then he says, in these relationships, in your work relationships, these are the addresses where you work this stuff out. It's meant to be a kind of bedazzler to the dreariness of your normal life. Do you know what a bedazzler is? It's meant to create a little sparkle. It's meant to reignite. The mundane stuff that you've got to work through. Because here's something that can very easily happen to you. You can start to think that if I were really following Jesus, well, I'd be itinerant like he is. Or I surely wouldn't have to go to Aldi or the new Publix. Mark, have you been to them? Let's not talk about that. And I wouldn't have to change diapers, it's hard to imagine Jesus doing that, a, a real follower of Jesus having to take a shower, or shave, or fold a pair of socks, or even find a pair of socks, or, you know, a whole pair. Filing taxes, and filling out expense reports, and calling on a customer, and listening to the radio and driving a tractor and going to soccer practice. These don't feel like the stuff of people who are trusting the God who is making all things new. But what the apostle would say, I think, is, look, being a Christian doesn't mean that all of a sudden you don't do normal things anymore. It just means that you do all the normal things in a completely different way. You envision them in a whole different way. It's not all new things. It's all things in new ways. And it's a thing that we're constantly having to bring to mind. We're constantly having to be trained for. It's why you're here this morning, whether you realize it or not. It's part of what happens in worship is that we get reformed so that we can go out into the world and see it with new eyes. So we can understand with new eyes that it is the Lord Christ that we're serving. Now, to get at this point... I mentioned a book title that I heard someone write about. I read someone write about. It went like this Did Jesus waste most of his life? That's the title of the book. Did Jesus waste most of his life? I think it's a rather compelling question. Because as you know, Jesus was likely around 33 when he was crucified and resurrected, he had a public ministry for about tres años solamente three, three years only. That means for 30 years, 10 years less than Leah's been alive. (laughs) And me, I'm older than she is, I'm older than she is. I'm sorry. (sighs) Dang you, Andy Jones. For 30 years, Jesus... was wasting his life, or was he? For 30 years, he had to do things like listen to his mom and dad say, Jesus, it's time to go to bed. Get off of your iPad. And he had to decide, like, well, I like being on my iPad more than listening to you, or I'm going to listen to you. He had to decide these things. He had to be told to go wash up after supper. He had to eat the same thing a lot. He worked apparently as a carpenter, presumably smashing his finger with a hammer or a first century woodworking equivalent. He had to deal with splinters, which are aggravating, sweat in his eyes, sawdust in his face, customers' We were not satisfied. The dreariness of having to wake up in the morning. Maybe you didn't sleep much that night before, and yet you still have got to go to work. You got to go to synagogue, and you just don't really feel like it. He had to do all of that stuff for three decades. 30 years. Was it all a waste? And see, what Christian theologians would say as we look at the Scriptures and what the Apostle Paul would help us to see is, no, 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 it wasn't a waste. It's was proof that God doesn't hate ordinary stuff. He made the world. He's teaching us how to rule over it and to bring lovely things out of it. And so these 30 years were necessary for Jesus to be able to save the world. He was, we're told in another place, learning obedience through what he suffered. Some of his suffering is just the limitation of having to be in one place at one time for a long time. Of having to deal with the uncertainty, not knowing what's going to happen tomorrow. Of having to entrust himself to somebody, another person, to other kids in the street when he's playing a game, to his parents as a grown up, to his friends, and not knowing are they going to love me back? Are they going to betray me? Can I trust them? Can I not trust them? All the things that you have to do, he had to do. And the scriptures would say this is a imp- critical part of his life. You know how we talk about he lived the life we should have lived? We say his life was very important. It gives us his righteousness. His righteousness was worked out in the course of 30 very ordinary Palestinian dusty years. You and I are daily participating in mundane, dreary, can be, things that God wants us participating in. You've got to believe that. If you're going to ever think it's the Lord Christ I'm serving. If I'm ever going to see beyond what I'm doing to see that there's someone behind it who's ennobling it. Who cares about it? You're going to have to first believe that God doesn't kind of secretly resent the fact that you're having to do it. And it's easy if you have a spirituality that needs to be very elevated to think that God doesn't really like normal things like cooking macaroni and cheese. But if Jesus had tasted macaroni and cheese, I bet he would have liked it. So the second thing God doesn't hate ordinary things. The second thing is this. He's just to be considered in all the things. And that's where stuff gets tricky. That's what the apostle is trying to say when he says, Slaves, obey your earthly masters in everything, and do it not only when their eye is on you to win their favor, but with sincerity of heart and reverence for the Lord. Whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord, not for men, since you know that you will receive an inheritance from the Lord as a reward. This is his way, and he's saying, Whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus. And this is his way of saying, In everything you're doing, you're having to be mindful and considering that Jesus is involved in it. You don't leave the life of being a servant of his, you don't walk away from it at any point. You're either moving away from him or toward him. You're considering him or you're not considering him. This is not an easy thing to do. The Voyage of the Dawn Treader, this and Tell, Eustace and Lucy have just landed on this remote island and they meet Ramandu, which if you're pregnant right now, have you considered that name? Ramandu? I'll email it to you. Text me or email me. He's this dazzling, wise person. And Lucy has just asked him about himself because he's, you know, he's beaming. He's, he's not like a person like we've seen. And she says, what are you? And he says, I am a star at rest. Not like Brangelina. He's a star like flung into the galaxies, lighting up the night sky. I am a star at rest, my daughter, answered Ramandu. And Eustace, being a, what we call in our house a I know it all, says, K I A, K I A, come on. In our world, said Eustace, a star is a huge ball of flaming gas. That's what a star is. He's talking to one, he said, In our world, a star is a huge ball of flaming gas. And Ramadu looks at him, and you can imagine a kind of chuckle, like, <laughs> You little punk, listen to me. <laughs> Even in your world, my son, that is not what a star is. That is only what it is made of. Even in your world, that is not what a star is. That is only what it is made of. See, it's very easy in your normal life to just assume that when you go to work, that all you're there to do is make money. All you're there to do is keep your boss happy. When you're at home, all you're there to do is make sure you clean up the messes. When you're at practice, all you're doing is trying to make sure you keep the coach happy, that you win. All of these things are noble goals enough, I guess, noble enough. But those aren't what these things entirely are. See, if you just look on the surface of things, if you just describe things by what they're made of, you're going to miss out on something the apostle's saying. He's saying if you just think about your normal work relationships as, well... I go there, he can command me to do what he wants when he's watching me and I get a paycheck. Well, you're not understanding what your work is for or who it is for. You've understood what it's made of. you understood the mechanics of it. You apply for a job, he's got power because he's got the money, you do the thing he wants you to do, you get an exchange. But that's not what the work is for. That's not who it's for you want to change the way you go about your daily life, you'll start to say, Jesus is to be considered in all the things that I do. Lewis, in a similar kind of way, speaks about this. He says, in my pleasures, in my pleasures, I've made it a goal to let all my pleasures be channels of adoration. Avenues of adoration. Every time I experience pleasure, to come to think of it, as, a, as my cheek is a pallet that I've felt the wind. I've experienced a finger from the hand of him who has pleasures evermore at his right hand. Do you ever think about that? Your pleasures that God has said, command the rich not to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God who provides us with everything we need for our enjoyment that one of the ways you consider God is you think about every time you experience something pleasurable, every time you run into something good and you eat a chocolate Oreo pie at Christmas, which I witnessed other humans in my house doing. They ate a lot of that pie. Andrew might have had three of them himself, pies. Yeah, they make some mean chocolate Oreo pie. And I like those, but I, as you can tell, I'm pregnant, so I'm trying not to eat those. <laughs> but when you eat the pie and you experience the pleasure to realize that there's a God who has just authored that pleasure for you, when you read something, and it's probably not going to be something on Yahoo Entertainment, but when you read something that confronts, as David Foster Wallace says, your loneliness, countenances it, stares it down, transfigures it, and treats it. You've read something before, lovely, some literature, something where somebody gets you and you suddenly understand there's somebody in the world who understands where I am. And it helps you to approach the world in a new way and it's, it's so pleasurable as you're drinking in this, this prose. You realize this is a, avenue of adoration, I'm experiencing a touch, a fingerprint of the God who's behind the ordinary things that I can see. Maybe it's watching the Nutcracker for the 27th time in your life. You've got a professional ballerina daughter. Anybody here? But every now and again, perhaps the magnificence of the dancers and the tinkling brilliance of Tchaikovsky Sweeps you up and you, you find yourself enchanted and realizing ah God's active in the world. He made people who could do that, who could make music like that, that carries you away like that. You start to tell a story about some tender moment you saw between a mother and her daughter, and water comes to your eyes. If you're a caveman, like I'm sometimes accused of being, you might say, water in my eyes. As if that's all it is. Water in your eyes. That's the physiological explanation. But if you're considering Jesus in all things to recognize that in those tears, in those movements of your heart, in those things that ignite something within you, you're meeting up with the God who's letting you catch a little... Glimmer, a little bedazzlement for your life in all its ordinariness. It can add a kind of soundtrack to your life which normally misses it. This is why your life doesn't feel as good as in the movies. I remember your dad, Kids Marshall, saying many years ago when I drive past that meadow there, when we were in Nashville, I just expect there to be some music going in the background that would make it even seem better. Because we've watched so many movies. That's what's so moving about them is that they, they tantalize our emotions with this movie music in the background. Have you noticed the music? Maybe not. That's what helps so much, you see. But considering God in all things as a channel of adoration, this is what adds soundtrack to your life. This is a poem that an apparently British man, Todd Boss, wrote. He said, <clears throat> to beat the froggiest of morning voices. <clears throat> my son gets out of bed, and he takes a lumpish song along. This is a British fellow. He takes a lumpish song along, a little lyric he learned in kindergarten about a boat. He's found it in the bog of his throat before his feet have hit the ground, and he follows its working, wonking melody down the hall. And into the loo. That's the can, you see. Into the loo. Sounds much more pleasant, doesn't it? Into the loo. As if it were the most natural thing for a little boy to do. And lets it loose while I lie still in bed. Alive like I've never been. In love again with life. Afraid they'll find me here. Drowned. And more than my fair share of joy. Imagine a father sitting in a bed, hearing his little boy wake up. And the first thing he meets the day with, and some of you are awakened like this, is song. He's singing a silly song he learned in kindergarten. And so his first act of the morning is to relieve himself. And as he's taking a whiz, is that impolite to say? He's singing a song as if it's the most natural thing in the world for a little boy to do. And the boy feels, the father, listening in on this, feels stabs of joy so much that he's afraid he's going to die from it. He's going to be drowned in the joy that's coming over. See, that's a very mundane pleasure. And it's a recognition of God being behind the scenes and all these little things for the attentive. He's just He's to be considered... In all things, day after day, night after night, there is no place where his voice is not heard for those who are looking. If he's to be considered in your pleasures, what about your aggravations? Your marriages, for instance. Your sicknesses. To think somehow or another that Jesus is involved here. I think often of the Apostle Peter telling husbands and wives, Husbands, love your wives according to knowledge. Don't be harsh with them. I'm not about to be electrocuted for something like that. <laughs> husbands, love your wives according to knowledge and treat them with respect as the, gentle, as the, as the weaker partner as co heirs in the grace of life. And he says this so that nothing will hinder your prayers. And I always wonder when I go to pray, like, Dad, Governor, is God going to hear me? Because the way I've treated my wife. Because I forget sometimes that this is the woman that God has entrusted to me. And the way I treat her is the way I treat him. I don't always take that to heart. But it sure does change a marriage if you can start to say, all my service for my spouse, for my wife, or for my husband, for my mom, for my dad, for my employer, all of my service for them isn't ultimately just for them. It's always done with an eye towards the one who really heals me, to the one who will reward me, to the one who will replenish me and who will resource me. There's a commercial, a Fox Sports One commercial, where a woman is looking into a TV, uh, into the camera, as her husband is watching sports on the TV, and he's he's apparently been glued into a couch in a reclined position, and he's lying there, and he's like eating Cheetos, and he's asking her to bring him stuff, and it's very stereotypical dad is doofus meta narrative that's running through our culture right now. And she looks into the camera, because he's gotten Fox Sports 1 that has more sports than ever now. And she says this great line, I hate you, Fox Sports 1, for ruining a perfectly decent husband. I think that's a great description. Here I had, not a wonderful husband, not even a good one, but I had a perfectly decent husband, and you just ruined him. Now he's going to be super glued to this couch for the rest of his life. He's even going to be more useless. And some of you have been entrusted with husbands like that. And vice versa. And to think, what if that is the avenue, that is the address where it, you have to say, it's the Lord Christ I am serving. I'm going to honor this man. I'm going to submit to him. I'm going to care for this woman. I'm going to lay down my life for her regardless of how they treat me back, because it is the Lord Christ I am serving. He is the one who gives me everything that I need for rich enjoyment. He is our rewarder, since you know you will receive an inheritance from the Lord as a reward. If you're going to be able to do this, if you're going to be able to do all things in a new way, And realize that God doesn't hate ordinary things. You're going to have to have regular consults with God. You're going to have to have practices like this. Like worship. Like coming to the sacraments. Like being in the scriptures. Like prayer. Daily prayer. Extended periods of prayer. Where you get your mind wrapped around this reality that God is involved in everything. You might have heard me tell the story about a man that we used to live next door to, a Texan who married a Canadian. He, a cowboy. She, not. <laughs> I was asking him one day, as he was driving this Dodge Ram 14,000 Turbo Cummings Diesel Dooley. I don't know. It was bigger than Nashville. And I admired it, and I said, hey, man, I like that truck. I was asking him about it and where he got it or something. I don't know, making small talk. And he said, yeah, hey, I, I got I picked that up on the way home from work one day. And I was mortified. I was like, you, did, you didn't, what, you just got it? You didn't ask your wife for it? <laughs> yeah, I didn't ask the wife, and you can bet when I got home, I was on the couch for three days after that one. He didn't consult his wife before he bought a, a car bigger than most people's houses. And so he was on the couch. He was, uh, he was displaced from the ordinary functioning of things. And it seems to me that there's this, this call for us to be willing, if we're going to say, it's the Lord Christ we're serving. He doesn't hate ordinary things. And it's in all these ordinary things that we're to consider him that we've got to be willing to set ourselves apart before him day after day. To constantly say, "Speak, Lord, for your servant," listens, to constantly bring our business before Him, to bring our concerns before him, to get resourced by Him, <clears throat> to redecide each day, who am I serving today as I go to work? Is it my customers, or is it just me? Can I serve my customers for the sake of the Lord? Can I serve my students? Can I serve my spouse, my children? Can I exist not for myself? You have to set yourself apart in these practices so that you can have the power to see rightly. On Thursday, Wednesday, the boys and I competed in the third annual Lookout Mountain Potato Cannon Contest. <clears throat> A potato cannon. Ours is about, I don't know, it's about five feet long. It's got a big chamber, made of PVC pipe. One's more slender, one's more full. At the end of it, one end, you shove a potato. Get a broom handle, musket load that thing, shove it down in there. You open up the cap at the other end of this, this four-inch cap. You spray the aerosol of your choice. Perhaps it's white rain hairspray. Or for us, it was Consort for Men, which we picked up at the Fairland Pharmacy. It's all they had. <laughs> I don't know if if you wear hairspray. I can't recommend. I don't know anything about hair products. And so you spray it in there. There's a little igniter. It creates this combustion chamber. The pressure you hope doesn't explode the thing, and it shoots the potato out at a velocity that makes this projectile have maiming capabilities for a small child. It goes really fast. The boys and I had to borrow one. We didn't have time to make one. had too many other things, sicknesses and such alike, and an that father. And so I called Henry Henniger, one of our elders here, and I said, hey, do you happen to have a potato gun? And he said, yes. <laughs> and he said, yes, I do. Who do you need to shoot? And that's what he said which I love. If you don't know Henry, you need to because he says things like that. So I got the potato gun and the potatoes and the boys and I went. We didn't really have a chance to do much of practicing in any way. The first bit of the contest shot from about 20 yards to a target. 20 yards, 50 yards, 70 yards, 90 yards. There's a hang time contest. First one's small ball. softball. you see, right up the middle. We got up. Shove that potato down in there. Kayler's holding it. Anders got the aerosol. That's enough. Puts it in. I cap it. Take my position, getting a good athletic stance. I send that thing, and here's literally the sound it made. And it went 3.7 yards. That's like 10 feet, guys. But fortunately, the proprietor of these games made a video of it. And he put that in slow-mo. And it is on the interwebs. And so I got a text from Matt Jelly the next morning. And he said, 3.7? 3.7? I won't tell you the rest of what he said because he insulted somebody else. (laughs) I'm immortalized as the guy who couldn't shoot a potato gun. But you know what it occurred to me? Because later on, that was our first try. We got better at it. But we came out there to compete, but we weren't ready. We hadn't practiced. We didn't know how much consort hairspray to put in there. We didn't realize that you didn't put a whole potato. I mean, what do you think? You're going to shoot like a 12 pound potato out of there? You just get a chunk of it. We didn't know. We just rolled out there and thought hey, man, we're going to gunsling here. 3.7 yards. As the day progressed, we got better. I think our last one, we overshot that sucker, that ninety-yarder. Uh huh. But it reminds me, if you're just going to roll out into your life and think you're going to have the power needed, see, that was our main problem: is we didn't have enough power. We hadn't put enough aerosol in there to get in a big enough flame to create enough pressure because we hadn't prepared. I think if you're going to live and have your life enchanted in some way with the presence of God, if you're going to live as if the Lord is concerned about all things, and it's his watchful eye, his accepting eye, his consoling eye, his welcoming eye, his resourcing eye is on you. No matter if your boss is or not, no matter if your spouse's is or not, then you've got to prepare to roll out there. You've got to set yourself apart in prayer. You've got to have practices in your life that help you believe. And if you just roll out into your day and just go to work, it's just going to be work. If you set yourself apart and say, today, Lord Jesus, fill me with the Spirit of Christ. If you have present, frequent consults with Him, how shall I live? I don't know what to do. My eyes are upon you. If you're looking to him, you will begin to see him in everything you're doing. And you'll get the power so that you can do the life that's been entrusted to you.